believe you're the savior of our soul. We believe you are God and in control. Welcome to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Bram, a ministry of Worship Generation Church located in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please visit us at www.worshipgeneration.com. We believe in the power of the gospel. We believe you can transform every soul. We believe you're the Savior. Now let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible. Let the nations be glad, all his saints rejoice. So as we come to chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, Saul has been rejected as the king of Israel by God, but he's still the king. Saul knows he's rejected. The Lord knows he's rejected him. Maybe no one else really knows other than Samuel the prophet who gave him that word. The people, to the people, he's their king. They've had some victories. Some good things have happened, particularly by Jonathan, Saul's son, and the victories against the Philistines in previous chapters. And Saul blew the trumpet and took the glory and the credit for what his son accomplished. But as a whole, things were looking up for the nation of Israel. And then we come to this story where Goliath comes on the scene. Now, at this point in time, David is already, you know, we know that he's already been anointed by Samuel to be the future king. He's the eighth son of the house of Jesse. And we know that he's been called upon to play music for Saul, King Saul, when he has a distressing spirit. So thus far, he's a teenager that occasionally is hired out, like a 1099, to come in and lead worship and music for Saul when he's having a bad day. And then he goes back home and takes care of his father's sheep, which is what he does in the family business. And now that's our background. So at the beginning of chapter 17, Goliath is introduced to us. We're told he's six cubits tall, which means he could have been as tall as nine feet, because a cubit is generally considered to be 18 inches. We're told that his armor weighed about 150 pounds. So he's a large man, and he's a strong man, and he's, he's a bully for sure, and he would have bullied all of his own people, so he was their champion of the Philistines. He definitely worshiped Dagon, the fish god, because he quotes his god and uh, intimidates through his god. So he's definitely demonically deceived, and he's very into his false belief system as a Philistine. And he has come out and challenged the nation of Israel to send just one man to fight So the two armies are facing each other, the Philistines and the Israelites, but they are in the land of Israel, which means it's the promised land. It's God's land for God's people. So if you're going forward, you're going to expel them, and you're going to have victory. But your heart has to be right. Saul's heart's not right, but David's heart is right. David's not there yet. His three older brothers are there enlisted in the army, and they're part of the Israelite army on this side of the valley. So Goliath comes out. And he taunts Israel and challenges him to send forth one man to fight him. And as you look at the text, it's very interesting because in the previous chapter, when David was anointed to be king, his older brother, who was Samuel, said, surely this is the Lord's anointed to replace Saul. It says that he was uh, his physique. It drew attention to his physique. So whatever we know about David's older brother, he looked like a bad dude. He had that physique. He looks like the guy that would fight Goliath. He looks like a champion for Israel. We know King Saul is that champion because we know he's already the tallest guy. He controls all the wealth. He's the most powerful man. And he's really good looking. 
So as Goliath would come out day after day to taunt and challenge Israel to send forth a champion, in the back of everyone's mind, immediately would be like, well, our king should go out and fight him because our king is the tallest man. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. When you're in sixth grade picking basketball teams, you know, you pick the, the, the tall guys usually pick first, but you split up the two tall guys or tall girls, and they pick everyone else. But when you're about to play basketball, anyone knows this, that when five guys look at another five guys play basketball, you always put the tallest guy on the other tall guy. That's just the way it works. Sean Havler, the missionary from Ethiopia, he knew Dave Markey in Russia. He goes, oh, I knew him. Yeah, we always had to face off at basketball at the Bible college because we were the two tallest guys. And Dave Markey played college basketball, so that was not going to match up for Sean Havler, and he told me so. So we can picture this. So when this big guy's coming out taunting and saying, send forth their champion, everyone's like, do we dare look at our king? Or you look around the, the army and the camp and say, well, who else fits the bill? How about David's older brother? But no one has the faith to step up. And it is a game of intimidation, like two boxers squaring off at the press conference three days before the fight at the weigh-in or something. It's intimidating. And it's also spiritual. It's a spiritual battle. It's Dagon, the fish god, being quoted by Goliath versus the God of Israel. And that's our background to the story. And in the midst of the camp of Israel cowering in fear and being crippled and paralyzed by fear, because the Bible tells us in the text they were all fearful. In fact, it says they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And we're told that David, you know, he's the shepherd. He's there with his dad. His dad sends him with stuff to bring to the battlefront for his brothers and the army. And with that background, David comes on the scene and he sees Goliath taunting Israel. And he's like, he's just blown away. Like, how is it no one will step up and fight this guy? Remember, David's a teenager. And we pick it up tonight in the text, verse 26. From that background... Where it says, Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now the words which David spoke were heard, and they reported them to Saul. And he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he is a man, from, a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by the beard and I struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. 
And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor and he put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with his coat of mail. That's his armor. And David fastened his sword, Saul's sword, and tried to walk for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I, I cannot walk with these for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then David took his staff, his shepherd's staff, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch, which he had, and a sling with his in his hand, and he drew near the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. That's the armor bearer of the Philistine. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts and the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all the assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone. He slung it and it struck the Philistine in his forehead. So the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and took over. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, and cut his head off with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and the gates of Ekron. That's Philistine territory. And the wounded of the Philistine fell along the road to Shariam, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine, brought it to Jerusalem, but put, he put Goliath's armor in his tent. Well, that's quite a story, right? It's historical, it's biblical, and it has great meaning for the church of Jesus Christ. Because, of course, David is that king that God anointed, and we know that Jesus Christ is the son of David, and he has the title of being son of David in the New Testament. This day was a man of war. Our, our Jesus, the son of David, the savior of the world, the son of God, he's a man of war in the spiritual realm. He disarmed principalities and powers, having humiliated them, made a spectacle of them on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he had total triumph over sin, over the grave, and over the devil, with the risen, his resurrection as well. Jesus is coming, walking on planet Earth, living a perfect, sinless life, born of the Virgin, defeating the devil in the 40-day temptation, head-to-head, man-on-man, if you will, and then the perfect, sinless life, the perfect, sinless sacrifice, his blood for our sins, totally acceptable and sufficient to save us from our sins and redeem us for all eternity and glory. His resurrected body, the hope of our resurrected body going to glory. His ascension to the right hand of the Father. Testimony that ever lives and intercedes for us to this day, to all of our needs, that we can come boldly in time of need 
under any circumstance of the Lord with our faith in Jesus Christ as sons of the Father and the promise of his coming kingdom for he's coming again as the King of kings and Lord of lords not to establish just the spiritual victory in that dimension but complete and total victory unfinished work in every dimension that exists in his universe that he made that is all made for him held by him and controlled by him David's victory is quite minuscule when you compare it to King Jesus and the victory that we celebrated last week, celebrating Good Friday and Easter service. But this is like a shadow, if you will, of things to come in the fullness is Christ. This is like black and white TV compared to color TV, if you will. This is shadows and things. It is war. It's violent. It's brutal. And war is, as we've seen even in the last few months with events in Europe. But This is a spiritual battle, even as there's a spiritual battle going on in the European war right now. There's always, behind every human physical war, there's a spiritual battle. We know that. And so as we look at this text tonight, we want to think of it in the realm of the spirit, in the realm of spiritual battles that we fight. Because we all face giants. The moment someone gives our life to Christ, we're born again, we're born anew, we're born in the kingdom, and we're now engaged in that spiritual battle. We were previously held captive by the devil to do his will, but when we give our life to Christ, we're part of the kingdom. And now as we enter the call that God has in our life, everything is forward, onward, and upward with King Jesus, who works in us for his good pleasure and gives us all things pertaining to life and godliness. But it's a spiritual battle to become who we're meant to be like Christ in our character. It's a spiritual battle to fight for our marriages if we're married. It's a spiritual battle to intercede and fight for our children and the call that God has on their life, our grandchildren, the call that God has on their life. It's a spiritual battle to fight for our neighborhood and the souls of the people that surround us. It's a spiritual battle to fight for our communities and our region, our state, and our country. It's always a spiritual battle. From the bottom to the top, from the king's palace to the homeless on the streets around the world, whatever language we speak in 24 time zones, there's a spiritual battle behind every human soul on planet Earth. There always has been, it is, and there always will be. And we need to understand when we give our life to Christ, we've entered in that battle. For our weapons are not carnal, but mighty in God for tearing down the strongholds of the enemy. And we don't war against flesh and blood, but we war against principalities and powers, heavenly hosts in the heavenly places. And our weapons are not carnal, but they're the armor of God with the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith and all the other things that make up the armor of God. So keep that in mind as we look at this text and consider application. A couple key phrases that may have jumped out to you when we were reading this text. One of them is found in verse 29 when David's brother says he knows more about David's heart than David himself. And David simply responds and says, what now have I done? He challenges his brother to give him an actual accusation. But then he says something very profound. Is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? When there's evil in the land and falsehood is prevailing against truth, when there's a shedding of innocent blood, when there's the diluting of falsehood against truth, when good becomes evil and becomes good, is there not a cause in the marketplace of thought for people of truth to stand for truth and having done all stand? Is there not a cause? In the human experience, there's just causes and unjust causes. And men and women passionately pursue just causes and unjust causes. And in this story, we need to know David is pursuing a just 
cause. We also see another phrase that gets our attention later on, down in verse 47. The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. So put these two phrases together. You have a cause. These are not a cause. And the battle is the Lord's. These are not a cause. And the battle is the Lord's. And it would seem in 2022, the sins of human race have all apexed from every previous generation and landed on our generation for complete, utter insanity, nonsense, and chaos. It's unfathomable. The deception, delusion, and discouragement that hangs over this planet right now on this day. From the oldest generation to the newest generation. I can't help but think what God said to Jonah, should I not have compassion on people who can't tell their right hand from their left hand? And it would seem that's the day that we live in. The church is truth. The truth is the word of God. And we are stewards of the mysteries of the word of God. And it's our accountability to stand on the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is the truth, the embodiment of all truth. And his word is the encompassment of total truth in the human experience. And the church, the keys of the kingdom, are really built around the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Thus we're in 1 Samuel 17 tonight, going through the Bible verse by verse. For the whole counsel, because all the scripture is inspired and it's profitable. So tonight in this place, we don't have to wonder what truth is what a just cause is. The truth of the universe and the only thing that matters for every human soul is that Christ is King, Son of God, Savior of the world, died for our sins. And that's the message that reigns supreme over the entire universe of trillions of galaxies. That is the apex message and everything is so insignificant behind that because either you're in Christ and you have eternal life or you're an Adam and you're condemned, whereas I finished Isaiah 66 today where it says, where the fire is not quenched and the worm is not satisfied. Jesus quotes that very passage talking about the reality of hell in the New Testament. Every generation of the church finds himself in a spiritual battle. It would just seem that ours has cranked up and ratcheted up quite a bit. Not to take away from previous spiritual battles, we know what it was like to be a believer in Christ in Europe in the 30s and the 40s, right? Who could know what we would have done as Dutch believers or Danish believers or whatever, you know? But if you're Czech and you're living for Jesus in 1939 and the Nazis were I mean, we don't know. Or to be a Christian during Stalin's reign or Mao Zedong and all that he did. Xi Jinping, who knows what it's like to be a believer in different parts of China right now? I don't know. Or North Korea. I feel like we got our hands full trying to be a follower of Jesus Christ in California, United States of America right now. It's a spiritual battle. And it seems like the enemy has come in like a flood, but the Bible tells us when the enemy comes like a flood, the Lord will raise up a standard, a banner against him. And that standard is King Jesus is coming. King of kings, Lord of lords. But we have to fight our battles. Being a believer, we're part, uh, being the church, we're part of a, a universal battle for our time and our generation and our location in our nation. 
So we shared the plan with all the other believers worldwide in different na- nations and ethnicities and languages. And they've got their challenges. We have ours. So we have that commonality. But we have the uniqueness, again, of being in our country and all that we're watching happen in our country. That's happening at such a pace. It's just so rapid and so demonic and so delusional. And we know that. I'm not exaggerating. When we have a new Supreme Court justice that can't say a woman's a woman and a man's a man, we've really gone over a cliff. And that's not the point of the message, but that's just the reality of the world we walk out in here when we go to work and you go to your university and you drive on the freeway and you do this and you do that. But we're still the church. And this story tells us the principles that we still hold the high moral ground We still have all the authority of heaven, all the promises of heaven, and the assurance that the king is coming. So like good diplomats, better yet, like good ambassadors and good citizens, we need to continue to represent this coming kingdom and declare the terms of this coming kingdom, whether the foreign land that we're in, planet Earth, accepts it, believes it, or rejects it. That's what we need to do. And this story reminds us of that. There are giants facing the church worldwide right now, spiritual giants. There are giants facing our country, spiritually, economically, socially. There are giants facing our personal life right now, physically, health, finances, different agitations of life, human relationships within our family, within our neighbors, and where we work. There's no shortage of giants in our world. And as I say giant to you, you probably have some visuals right away that come to your mind. So there's certain giants of people and forces that are against the church worldwide. There's giants in our country that are against the church and against our faith within this nation trying to destroy it. And then there are giants in your real world that affect you personally. The Bible tells us, though, this is the good fight. And Paul himself said at the end of his life, the Apostle Paul, I have kept the faith, finished the race, and fought the good fight. So there's bad fights, and there's good fights. The bad fight's getting, getting in someone else's quarrel, and the Proverbs tells us that's like grabbing a dog by the ear when they're in a dog fight. That's not the right fight. But the right fight is the good fight, to fight the good fight of right and wrong, truth and falsehood. What's true, just, noble, honorable, and praiseworthy in the things that God honors, that's the right fight. And that's a good fight. The fight of prayer for your walk and your character and your convictions and your conscience. The fight of prayer for your family and your children, your grandchildren and your neighbors. That's the good fight. And that's the fight we really fight like David fighting Goliath in this text. And so as we think about this, that it's a just cause and it's the Lord's battle because we gave our life to Christ. We give our life to Christ and it's now our battle then there's some really good things we can pull from this and and really take to heart. One, we need to realize in the midst of this fight and this spiritual battle that each of us fight as we seek to live for the Lord at any generation or time, but especially ours right now, is we have to reject the negativity of everything the kingdom of darkness throws at us in this fight. Now, I've been thinking about this. Because the world likes to say he's a positive person, she's a negative person, she's a positive person, he's a negative person. And the world gets caught up on positive and negative. I understand that. But, you know, if you really think about it, everything that Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's going to do in your life is positive. 
There's not one thing that God does in your life that's negative. Because all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Do you realize everything, 100%, not 99.99, everything, everything the living God wants to do in your life, in my life, between now and eternity, is a good thing and would be what we call a positive thing. All of his thoughts are good thoughts, right? That's what the Bible tells us. Thoughts are good thoughts. Thoughts of what? A future and a hope. Thoughts of peace. And we've been talking about this. The word tells us to take every thought captive and obedient to Christ. So one thing for sure we control is our thoughts and our conscience before the living God. And we'll give an account for it because Jesus says that on the day of the Lord, we'll give an account for the thoughts and the intents of our heart and every idle word that came from it. By the buns of a heart, does a woman or a man speak? Now, let's think about the devil. Does the devil have one positive thought towards you and you're calling in the Lord? Absolutely not. He's a thief. He's a liar. He's a murderer. He's a slander of the brethren. He wants to destroy you. He wants you dead. Spiritually, physically, eternally. He's not just Dr. Doom. He's Dr. Death. You've been listening to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Brandt. If you would like more information about the ministry of Worship Generation, visit us online at www.worshipgeneration.com, where you can listen to the podcast of today's entire message. Worship Generation is located at 10350 Ellis Avenue in Fountain Valley, California. Our service times are Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. And also follow Pastor Joey on Instagram under the tag name at Joey Brand. Thanks for listening and God bless. Not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed, not ashamed of the one I love. Not ashamed, not ashamed.